welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Lots of questions. Before we introduce our guest today, I want to make sure that you, oh listeners, know about the panelists on this show so you know who our voices are. Richard Littauer, calling on behalf of Sustain, runner of a text press on Old English poetry called Word Word Press. That's really irrelevant. Eric Barry is calling today from his home in the Atlantic West, somewhere Colorado or Utah. Eric, how are you? Doing good. Doing real good. Justin Dorfman is calling from L.A., although he is hatless today. Justin, how are you? Doing good, Richard. How are you? Excellent. And our guest today is Niels. Niels sent over. I probably mispronounced that. I'm not Dutch. Is calling from Amsterdam. Niels is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Amsterdam who has recently published a really interesting report from the Ford Foundation on human rights and upgrading governance for the equitable internet. He's done a lot of work in this field before, but this report is a really awesome capstone. And we want to get his thoughts on what the internet is, what human rights are, and how to make sure that we all work in the open. He may correct me on some of them. I'm looking forward to that. But first, I want to ask, Niels, how are you doing today? Hi, Richard. Hi, Eric. Hi, Justin. Thanks so much for uh, having me here. And this is really making my day. So, Niels, I did mention a report, but just to give some context, you're also a developer, right? You also work in open source in general. Can you talk a bit about how you got into this space and what your situation is these days? Yeah, I've been in the free software open source community for quite a bit. And I completely need to blame my brother for this, who is the actual computer science guy. He's eight years uh, my senior. So when he was going to university, when he was 18, he was teaching me GW basic. And after that, Q basic. And I just wanted to play the games. And he said, no, you cannot just play the games. You need to go through it, look it up. And that was the start. But then mm, I got a bit into activism and, and radio. And when I studied that, then when I finished my MA in philosophy, I went off to Ethiopia to set up Ethiopia's first community radio station. And when I got into Ethiopia, of course, a big part of, of community radio is editing. And while using Windows computers and licenses that were available there, we quickly found out viruses and admin was taking up way too much time. So there I found a version of Ubuntu 6.10. And then I dove way deeper into the Linux game. And that started off a project where we went on to improve the translation of Linux in Amharic and Afana Romo, two of the local languages. Then we developed different distros for the different parts of the radio station that have been in use ever since. So that was then a big thing that really set me off. And I then have never used any non-free operating system ever since. So that, that was really great and so great to use Audacity, but also Dark Eyes for streaming. And it was all so stable. And it was so nice that we could run production machines and archiving machines. And that was not that hard for someone who, who wasn't a computer science major or anything, but just someone, a guy with interest. And so we tend to think that you need to really fancy computers to do things, but Linux actually allowed me to reuse so much of the hardware and software there to enable freedom of expression. Admittedly, I wasn't quite sure what to expect <laughs> with you on this podcast. And that is a huge 
amazing story right out of the gate that we just can't brush over. So I got to know, you said you got into the humanitarian effort and then you went over and you just built this insanely powerful and, and useful tool for the people. Can you explain like a little bit more of when you had the idea to when you got there and started, like how did this even come about? I was involved in quite a bit of activism in Amsterdam, especially around the right to live and affordable housing. And in Amsterdam, we then still had the squatting movement. And the squatting movement consists out of the idea that the use of, of property goes above ownership. And then it was still legal to squat a building, which means if you can come in without leaving traces of entry and you establish what is called in Dutch law house piece, which practically means you have a bed, a table and a chair, then you are the official person living there. And the person who owns it, then needs to show that they are having other plans with that house and or else you can live there for quite a while until they have official other plans. So I was doing quite a bit of that, but the situation was then pretty okay in Amsterdam. And I felt like I wanted to do something more and something better. And when I then finished my degree in philosophy, I really wanted to do something. I had then also studied a, a year in Berlin. And one of the quotes on top of the Humboldt University directly when you enter is in German. And it means philosophers have always interpreted the world differently, but what really matters is to change it. And that's what I actually wanted to do. I didn't want to be an armchair philosopher. So with my partner, then we looked for projects and we're thinking what we were doing and what she was interested in and what I was interested in. Then through an indie media mailing list, it became clear that Ethiopia was opening up to request for community radio licenses. And then we started reading more about community radio and found that there are three ways in which community radio is very important to sustain it. That's technical sustainability, social sustainability, and financial sustainability. So we went into those things and thought, how can we do that? So we needed to find a partner. And then we found Jimma University, which is 350 kilometers southwest of Addis Ababa, the, uh, the capital. And that university has the theory of community-based education. So if we thought that we could link it to the university and by that also have a bit more the sustainability of a, and the stability of a university, but connect it closely to the community, that's what we could build. And, you know, with the naivete of someone in their early 20s, I just called the Ethiopian Broadcasting Authority and thought, is this possible? And then they, <laughs> I got put through to the head of the Broadcasting Authority and I said, that's possible. And that's what we then thought. Then we started fundraising and doing stuff for that. And then we thought we're going to do this in three months. And in the end, we stayed there for two years. So there were a lot of bumps and things, but we enjoyed and learned so much. And the radio stations are actually still running. In the end, it were eight community radio stations that we've been working on. And then in later work, then we also got to set up a BA in journalism at that university. So it really grew into a thing and it really like put the interest in me for working on these things and that was then also a bit the basis so after i was in ethiopia i started working for this international organization called press now which was later called free press unlimited and i've been setting up radio stations in somalia but also doing mobile radio in afghanistan but then i got so fed up 
with the time I needed to spend on lugging around all these transmitters and teaching people to work on the technical sustainability. Because you practically need a sysadmin, you need a radio operator, you need a solder, so you need a lab. And if you train someone, they generally seem to go to another profession because they really learn something, right? Which is great because you know what? You want to learn people, people stuff. You want to teach and then to learn stuff together, right? But that's then really hard for the sustainability. So I was looking for something else. And then I thought, of course, I, that was like the start of citizen journalism. And I thought like, hey, but all these smartphones people carry around, they have as much computing power as my Linux boxes. Why don't we do actually do editing on that? And then together with the Guardian project, we've been developing the StoryMaker app. And that was the first app that would allow photo, audio, and video editing on Android. So it was pretty much just porting FFmpeg and then to run on Android. And then we trained 600 citizen journalists with that in Morocco, Tunisia, Egypt, and Iraq. And that was such an interesting, but also tough project. So many different Android phones. Yeah, it was really early phase of Android development. And that was tough. That was tough, but super interesting. And that really also laid to bear many issues with security and digital security. So that's when I then got much more interested in digital security and having worked with these activists. And that was the time of the Arab Spring and Occupy at the same time, right? So I thought that is really the moment when things are happening. But we also need to think of digital security. So then I got really involved with tactical tech and other organizations working on digital security issues. But I also found out that like teaching people who are in the most stressful situation of their lives to do something else added on top and that the best possible outcome of that behavior is nothing happens is almost like the worst premise for behavior change. We have been trying to tell people to use condoms for decades now. And so they just need to do this one thing. And we have had varying success with that. But digital security is such a moving target. That was really tough. So then I started wondering, why don't we address this in the infrastructure itself? And at that moment, I was really on fire, right? I had to been to these countries saw the potential of peeping, getting freedom of expression, plus access to information. And I thought this equals progressive social change. And then we all kind of know where Arab Spring and Occupy movement went. And that's not the success that we then hoped for. So that really confused me because my whole premise, freedom of expression plus uh, access to information equals social change, clearly wasn't true. So I wanted to rethink governance and what it means. But the question about security still haunted me. So that's when I got interested into internet governance, which seemed a governance innovation where all kinds of stakeholders had a say and where all people could participate. And I thought, might this be an answer to representative democracy or liberal democracies that clearly have failed? And so I started researching internet governance and that allowed me to go to the places that Previously, I thought of like, we're almost sacrosanct. I remember from those early days reading RFCs, the output documents of the Internet Engineering Task Force that set the standards for networking security. And then all of a sudden, I was going to these meetings where all these people were writing those things. 
and I could walk into someone and I, and I just come from a session I didn't really understand or actually not didn't really not understand at all. So I could I like, how does this thing BGP work? And I'm like, I'll tell you because I've invented it or I was there when it was first implemented, you know, and that was so great. You know, there are so many different people with so many great skills, but also really high level of politics. So that then kicked off five years of working on internet governance that then finally resulted in my uh, dissertation, Wired Norms, Inscription, Resistance and Subversion in the Governance of the Internet Infrastructure. And you can, all the things I cited I've written, you can download from my website, neilstenuber.net. But else, I'm sure it'll end up in the show notes as well. And that dissertation was the basis for the report I wrote with the Ford Foundation, which is called Human Rights and Other Bug, Upgrading Governance for an Equitable Internet. Because what I found that what is so interesting about the internet, which consists of more than 70,000 independent networks, lots of different devices from different manufacturers, lots of networking stacks, operating systems that are all working together, that is possible through a, what I call infrastructural norm of interconnection. That means that all new norms, software standards that are proposed are evaluated by this infrastructural norm of interconnection, which means does this help to increase the interconnection between all these networks and devices? And that allows communities from all over the world to actually grow the internet. And then the internet has a network externality, meaning that with every service and every network that gets connected to the internet, the value of the internet becomes bigger and therefore it becomes more relevant for other networks and services to connect to it. So this is a very strong self-sustaining ecosystem, except that there are also norms that might decrease interconnection that we do have interest in, such as privacy or human rights. But these are re structurally rejected in the governance of the internet. And that is then quite a big of a problem if we're going to build all our information societies on top of this infrastructure, because this internet infrastructure is setting the rules of everyday life. But this is the nature of infrastructure. It hides itself. It only shows when it breaks. Just like with water, you open the faucet and you get water, and that's what you expect. You expect that the garbage gets picked up, but you only notice it when it doesn't work. But in the meantime, it really determines how we go about our things and how everything functions that is built on top. So there's so much attention to platforms, but I'd, what I'd say, definitely also need to look at the things that happen underneath. So I really like the idea of interconnectedness and, and looking at the internet through norms. And how do we define things? And, you know, it's privacy, it's normally what we want, but it also stops interconnectedness, which is important for the value of the internet as a whole, because that sort of lays bare the fact that we're always dealing with multiple different objectives with how we think about things. When you talked last Tuesday, I know that was a while ago, that would be Tuesday, I think the 8th of August, you had another panelist on with you, who was Bob Olada, who was helping out with questions. She brought up a really good point that human rights is often a term that hits much harder than ethics. 
Ethics is a term that the tech industry loves to use to talk about, well, is this the right thing to do or not? But human rights bears at home, well, this is about people's lives. It's about people's bodies. This is about how these things interact with them. Now, we could talk all day about infrastructure and all day about human rights, but there's many other podcasts that do that way better than I could facilitate. But what I'm curious about is thinking about interconnectedness and norms and thinking about human rights. You as an open source developer or someone who's worked with open tools, how do you view the intersection between large unseen infrastructure, human rights, and open source as this whole idea that everything should be able to be used by anyone else? How does that work with you with the idea of privacy? That may be a very open question, so take that where you want, but I'm curious how you reconcile those things. Part of this research, and here things will start to become a bit meta, because Part of my research has been done operationalizing quantitative analysis of standards and standard setting through mailing list analysis. And I've been doing that with a group of excellent people in the Big Bang project. And I will link that in the show notes as well. And that project allows for the analysis of mailing lists and standards and also open source software projects. So that allows to understand affiliations, power structures, and networks in the production of infrastructures. So when we talk about infrastructure, we often think that this is code, or even more people think about it as hardware. But as open source developers know, the most central part in this are actually people. And this comes about every time when something breaks, like, Is there anyone who still knows Haskell here? You know, because this is still done in Haskell or in, and this shows it's actually all about people and people that set the rules, that maintain the rules, that make it work. And for that, for these people that make it work together, and I found this in internet routing, we found this in particular computing communities, for instance, in the Python community. These are all people that flock together and then build community norms. And if you fall outside, then you're also much more likely to not become part of that community and not strengthen and work on. But unfortunately, as the excellent researcher Corinne Kath shows, is that in many of these governance bodies, such as the Internet Engineering Task Force, there is a total monoculture that is actually very resistant to change and also for integrating other perspectives. And unfortunately, This is very biased towards North American and European companies and right-handed men or cis men of middle age and higher. And there is nothing inherently wrong with that, but it is wrong if they set the rules for a global internet. And this is the reason why you still cannot have an email address in Chinese or Arabic and why actually Ramsi Nasser, great Lebanese-American artist, wrote the Arabic computing language, Kalb. Kalb is awesome. I love this language. So it's, for those of you who may not have interacted with it before, it's not just another language which like you can then code in, you code directly in Arabic. So you can find it on GitHub under Q-A-L-B, but you don't have to use Roman characters to actually run the software. And there's very few people working on minority languages right now in coding itself. Most of it's being transliterated into Roman characters or English. So even VAR is actually in Arabic, super cool language. Sorry, I just want to make sure that was plugged. 
thank you so much for bringing that up. I love that. Where were you going? And the interesting thing is that this is not a minority language, right? So, so, yeah. so <laughs> he called it then a case of engineering performance art. And I asked him why. He said, because it will never work. It only works to show how things break, how every part of the internet, programming stack, networking stack, operating system, GitHub, everything rejects Arabic as a form of input. So not just on the application level, but completely down into the nuts and the bolts, the network tells you if you're not a native speaker with a Latin script, you do not belong here. So the network is really not global and has really got a lot of inherent biases. And I think that is what CALP really nicely shows and what we also see in these governance bodies. Together with Mallory Nodal, also Center for Democracy and Technology, I made a really simple internet draft to request people to stop using master-slave and blacklist whitelist. And that ended up being a huge row, which ended up in the New York Times. And we just thought this is going to be simple. Django already did it. GitHub was working on it. Lots of companies were fine. But these engineers in the Internet Engineering Task Force said like, no. And it became this huge kerfuffle, which only was semi-solved when the North American Institute for Standards, NIST, came up with their recommendation, which was actually inspired by our work. And then when NIST said it was okay, then other people were okay with it because that's the American Standards Institute. It's not solved. I had a fight about this last week on a project I'm in. Thank you that NIST is out there. And it's great that some Americans are able to look at that. When you're talking to someone in Germany, it doesn't matter that NIST exists. I, I wish it was solved, but I, yeah, really, I, I love the work. Like, I agree with it. I'm just saying, like, it's still going on very well, no, definitely. But in the IETF, people could only agree with banning that language yeah. when NIST said it. So it means there again that North America has such a disproportionate influence over the Internet, not just in terms of companies, but also in terms of culture. And that is something we need to change if we really want to make it a global network and not just reproduce existing power structures. And that is what the report actually is about, is creating the internet. And that, then I'll go back to your question as a human rights enabling environment. And that is something that we should do with open source software as well, because there is not just a giant switch to change all the norms at once. And we need to do that in ourselves, in our own communities and in our own work and also learn and find out what we're doing wrong. Because actually, I do not believe people are doing this intentionally. No, not whatsoever. But these are just the existing norms that we need to be able to question. And human rights impact assessments are really good for that because it allows you to ask, ask critical questions of your work, but also get into contact with other perspectives and then learn how to make it better. But what's the most important part, I think, is that it's never done. Your human rights are like muscles. You need to keep training them because else you lose them. And you cannot inscribe a specific quality into a particular technology that it will be used in a certain way. And that's what makes the internet great, right? That it's a general purpose network that we can reuse it in so many different ways. But it also means we learn things about it. Ah, we didn't envision that. So we should rethink about that. So thinking about the impact of the work, the societal impact of the work we do is 
This should be an inherent part of the software and uh, the code we produce. And that includes chain responsibility, like what is our code used for? And how can we think about that? And if your code is used for a bad thing, that doesn't make you a bad person, but it makes you a bad person if you don't do anything about it and if you don't relate to that, right? So, and this is a way in which we can all make things better. Take that social responsibility, which is very similar to the discussion scientists had when nuclear energy and the atomic bomb was invented. Our actions have consequences. And people who work with computers have a disproportional impact on society. And that's not because we're so great. That's not because we're so intelligent, but that's just how things turned out. But do not think that you therefore have earned to make decisions. No, it just gives you more responsibility to act like that. I would love to act like Spider-Man more. I mean, especially if I could have the, the web thing coming out of the, the wrist. It's probably no secret to listeners. Uh, linguistics rights is really dear to me. Minority rights is what I wrote my master's thesis on. And it's a really awesome subject. It's really cool that you worked in the Park. It's great that you quoted German earlier and that, you know, from the Netherlands, who I'm guessing you speak Dutch. So there's all sorts of different ways of stopping English hegemony. One of the points you raise makes me ask a question, which I ask myself a lot. And so I'm curious what your thoughts are. Yes, I am part of systems that are dangerous and that are destroying parts of the world and violating human rights. I have Amazon Prime. I have an American passport. I use HTTPS, which means that I'm using an internet and the structures in the internet, which uh, lead to people who look like me having control of things. And that really sucks, right? I don't want that to happen. I want to be able to live in a world where anyone can be part of the governing bodies that make things happen, where anyone can speak any language that they want to make that happen, where people could code in their native languages. How do you personally choose what level of the stack to approach to figure out how to be a better person? Because it's easy to say you're a bad person if you continue to be complicit in structures that are dangerous, but it's hard when there's so many structures that like the human mind will boggle at the ability to actually solve everything. So I'm curious how you personally reconcile that and if you have any recommendations for open source developers as a result of that question and answer. Yeah, the risk of this is making it too big and too heavy. And what is most important actually is that, which is on the one hand liberating and on the other hand terrifying, we don't know what is going to make the real change. We'll leave that to historians to decide. So then we can just leave that thing aside where we think we need to do the good thing and then good with capital G. I think it's already really good if we do a bit better. So if you continue doing what you do, but just try to make it a bit better. And that's also the way we are thinking about food and health, right? So you know that if you set the New Year's resolution, I want to go to the gym every day, you're definitely not going to make it past week two, right? So try to make the things a bit better. Try to document your code better. Try having discussions. Try have people who are not just all cis white dudes on the developing team, but really do your best to bring more people in. Put a code of conduct in your uh, GitLab or GitHub repo, and then uh, put up a trust person. And then more people will see that it's a project that cares and they will feel more welcome. Maybe they won't join your project, but they think that's cool. It's becoming a better environment. And that way we all make little steps, inspire people and create a better place. 
But also companies like Cloudflare have now adopted a human rights policy. So if you work in a startup, small company, big company, ask about the policies where they are, ask about compliance, about due diligence. Can the UN guiding principles of business and human rights be implemented? So by starting those conversations and learning, not you don't need to preach, you can just start those conversations to create a wider awareness and then step-by-step step make things a bit better. Because we all know things need to change, right? So on the social, on the environment and everything, and this can always feel very threatening, but it can also then feel emancipating. So I do a lot of martial arts and I really enjoy them. And so the first time you get punched in the face, you feel almost like insulted, right? Like, whoa, they did? What? Can you do this? And then the second time you look away because you, st you still have this reflex. And then the third time or the fourth time you start to have your guard up and you start to be able to deal with it. And the fifth time you have a bit of a strategy, right? So it's also getting comfortable in hard situations and thinking through them. And that's something that we need to train and we do not need to be perfect. We just need to be better. And we also all do not know what is the right thing and how it will be solved. And people who say, this is the way, follow me, we need to go, don't believe them. They do not know. But we do know that some things are bad and we need to find opportunities for change. And I think that's what open source software is, can be really good for because we can fork, we can change, we can make iterative changes, discuss them in our meetings. But it can also be, as we all know, a bit of a toxic place with benevolent dictators and software projects that run it and then uh, reject pull requests based on nothing, you know. So we need also in our own practice, we need to try to build nurturing and enabling communities to get new people in because that's the only way in which we grow this practice. And yes, things can be really hard, right? So we also need to think about our tooling. So to write documents in the Internet Engineering Task Force, to submit an internet draft, you need to go through crumb down to put the markdown into XML, or you need to write it into XML. And then from XML, you need to put it through XML to RFC. And then you have this really buggy bug thing. And a lot of people see this as a bit of a rite of passage, but it actually just is a filter for people. So like, it's just another sign that says club, need to comply to our methods, our tools to be able to partake in this. And this is the super interesting thing about internet governance is that almost it feels like a fallen over Scrabble box with so many abbreviations that you're like, ah, these are five abbreviations in one sentence. And on the one hand, this functions to show who is in group and who is out group, so who belongs and who doesn't. But on the other hand, it also is a way for all these people from different backgrounds that work on different layers of the stack, but also diplomats and lawyers and to all work together to create their own language. Because these are also people from all around the world. So they find ways, find new abbreviations to deal with each other and make this global network working. So where the positive thing also has negative impacts, then we need to see how we can address those, right? So it's never easy. It's never clear cut. It's a process and we're all in this together. So you totally anticipated my follow-up question, which is what can open source developers do to make the world a better place incrementally? So thank you for all that advice. I think that's really great. We'll have those in the show notes as well. I think that's about as deep as I want to get down that philosophical hole. So now I want to move back to another bit, which is you just published this really great report with Ford. 
but you also have this PhD called Wired Norms. What was the most surprising thing in the new report that you were like, oh, okay, this needs to be written about again or in a new way? Why the new report? What was the best part about it? I think the most important thing, and this echoes a bit the previous point, is bringing different groups into contact with each other. And this is very the sad thing I see on different levels is that like academics are really bad talking to other people. And this might even be, no, yeah, this is definitely true for academic code and finding its ways to other software projects because we try to do experimental stuff and then don't document well, don't refactor, just make it work. And I wanted to translate the findings. And Ford has been just really nice to help me do that, also to speak with a different voice. What I really learned about that, so I came myself then from civil society organizations, doing academia, and now trying to influence corporations. That one very important way, what makes it really hard for all these different groups to work together, and this is a bit of a philosophical point, is that all these people have a different time. They work on a different pace with a different rhythm. And that's why it's possible to put a lot of these people in a room together and to work together. But to work together on a sustained period of time is very hard. Because academics, when I joined academia, I sat in these first meetings and I thought like, where are the minutes? Where are the to-dos? Where is the accountability? Let's get this done. Why is this meeting taking two hours? And then it turned out it was not about getting things done at all. It was more about sensitizing each other for concepts that we are working with, that slow pace of knowledge production in which you need to be quite creative. But then it's very unclear what you're going to get out, but you're only going to know when you're in it. So if you want to contribute to Debian, you need to set these particular mail headers in MUT, right? And, but every time I show people MUT at the humanities or the social science faculty, they're like, ah, I don't want to be part of this. That looks terrifying. It's finding ways to communicate to the right audiences. And as academics, we're really bad at that because when we talk to each other, we also have a particular lingo, just like the internet governance people. And what the report tries to do is take some of this academic knowledge and translate it to language for coders and policymakers and make it really accessible. So actually, I do not have so many new points, but then it turns out when you make these points in another language and for another audience, some of the argumentation also becomes very different. And there you also say that really the way that we use language really influence the way we think about meaning. Many programmers will know this, right? So if you start fixing a problem in another language, you're going about it completely differently. So you need another logic in your head, right? And this is what we do with different audience as well. So so where we think me is just me. No, me is very different when I work in this language or for that audience or that. And that makes it also really interesting to decenter yourself and see part of this movement and how we can change things. Because what at one moment looks completely logical and 100% certain, if you just look at it from a bit different way, it becomes very different. Another rousing call for multilingualism, not just in spoken language, but also in your coding language of choice. Niels, I would love to ask a lot more questions. You are incredibly articulate and it's the slow pacing is excellent for quotes. So I hope we're going to have a lot of those in the show notes. However, 
I have a final question. You just say that reshaping what you're saying and putting it out there in a new way leads to new results. So that means you're probably going to keep writing for an external audience. So now that we're running up on time, where can people follow you on the internet? Where can they learn more about things that you're writing and how can they engage in this discussion further? Follow me on Twitter at Neil Stenover or follow me on my website, neilstenover.net. Let me interject real quick. You do write a lot of papers on 5G. And 5G, in America at least, there are certain people that have this conspiracy theory that 5G is not secure. There's this Huawei stuff that's going on. And since you work very closely in that community, can you tell our audience how secure is 5G? 5G is so interesting because internet governance has been dominated for the longest time with private corporations. And 5G, in a way, is a way for network operators, for telecom companies to regain control. So to put almost like from the uh, more intelligence in the network, where the internet was bent, to actually put more intelligence in the network. And the question is, will this work? And how strong will countries push for this? And the question there, I think the answer is, will the internet companies allow for aligning the internet with national and local norms and values, or will they continue to push their own hegemony? And if they continue to do so, then countries will continue to regulate, and then these, there will be this tussle. So, so many interesting things ahead in the coming time. These are the issues of our time, so I'm super enjoying to, to think about this with you and to see how this unfolds and we'll build a new future together with you in the future. Awesome, thank you. Thank you so much, Niels. Before we let you go, Spotlight. This is the part of the show where we, at the very end, talk about other things. The goal here is to shed light on people, open source projects, or just that really new plant you got, because as hosts, we've just run out of open source projects to talk about in like the 100 episodes we've done. So Spotlight today, Eric Berry, what is your Spotlight? Yeah, my Spotlight has actually just happened literally two minutes ago. I got a notification that popped up. Nani Eggball, who is a super sustainer. She's one that everybody should know. She just got engaged. So, yay. Uh, So, yeah, I just want to call it out and say, Nadia, congratulations. Um, We think you're awesome. And I hope you have a wonderful life with your fiance. That's amazing. Likewise, Nadia, awesome. So, so cool. Justin, how are you going to follow that? Thanks, Eric. Cosign, it's a container signing verification storage application. I've been talking with Dan Lawrence, who is the lead of Google's open source supply chain security team. Check it out. Some really cool stuff they're doing with the SIG store organization. And yeah, cosign. Excellent. I believe we'll have Dan on this podcast at some point. So look for a published episode on that as well. Thank you so much, Justin. My spotlight today is looking around my room. Decline a Hobbit by J.R. Tolkien. This is the same as the normal Hobbit, but it's Little Hobbit because it's in German. I've been reading this before bed. Turns out, if you really want to go to sleep, try reading your favorite kids' books in a different language you only barely speak. (laughs) Works really well. Highly suggest it. Harry Potter in Spanish is also great. Harry Potter is one of the best things to learn in languages in because it's been translated into freaking everything. So if you don't know what to read before you go to bed, it's different. Try something different. Niels, what's your spotlight today? 
my spotlight, I think, will be on organizations that are active in internet governance. And that can also help you to get into it. So there's Article 19, which has also an Internet of Rights Fellowship. So if you are interested in partaking in internet governance, some big questions, have a look at uh, the digital team. Mewish Ansari is leading it. The Rejos Digitales is uh, or the digital rights organization for Latin America that's doing the same thing. The Center for Democracy and Technology is doing that for North America. And also great researchers such as Corinne Kaff have been doing great work on this. And of course, shout out to great pieces of software that have been making my work possible. So it's the Python community, Debian, Mutt, so many great terminal emulators, you know, but I, you've probably given all those shout outs all in the past, but I'm still like so happy and excited about the responsiveness of these communities. And right now I'm actually working on, I'm building 5G networks. So I got some really cool, I got the Atus B210, that is like a development platform for software-defined radio. And so now I'm completely in the GNU radio community and Atus Research that builds the hardware, but then also provides the drivers. So responsive community, so nice. And every time this happens and you people are so eager to share their knowledge and to get stuff working together, that will always keep my heart beating for the open source and the free software community. I love that. Hammond Radio people are the best people, the coolest hackers. Niels, it's been a real pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. Best of luck in the future with your work. Try not to get hit in the head too often. And uh, have a good one. Thank you, Niels. Bye, y'all.